And we're back with another episode of The Anarchist Experience, episode 195, a.k.a. season 3, episode 15. Uh, coming at you podcast only this week. No call-ins. Uh, as always, I am your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, and podcast only because uh, our co-host MC uh, took a surprise vacation and <laughs> won't be joining us. Um, and seeing as how I went through the week uh, relatively unmolested and unharassed, uh, I've got nothing going on. And with that being said, uh, we bring you this other rousing edition of Richie Rich Reads the News. So let's just get right into it, shall we? Headlines. A local government says Merry Christmas by using eminent domain to take small business owners building. Uh, headline, Syracuse cop force doctors to probe a man's rectum for drugs, then bill the man for it. Uh, headline, over one million gun owners refuse to obey ban, no one turning in magazines. Another gun-related one, headline, Trump's bump stock ban shows once again he is happy to ignore inconvenient laws. Uh, headline, we'll need property rights in a world of gene-edited humans. That'll be interesting. Uh, headline, San Francisco order, orders property owners to build exact replica of demolished home. Uh, headline, saying you're against fascists doesn't excuse acting like one. Uh, headline, acting ag uh, oh, excuse me, against government humanitarianism. And finally, headline, six reasons to hate the TSA when you travel this Christmas. All right, let's begin. Local government says Merry Christmas by using eminent domain to take small business owners' building. <clears throat> For more than two decades, John Munham's Furniture Store has been a staple of downtown Brockton, Massachusetts. But a week ago, city officials gave Munham an early Christmas present, a notice to vacate his property. Brockton Furniture is currently located on the first floor of the tallest building in the city, 93 Center Street. But in four months, Monum will be forced to relocate his business because the local government doesn't think he has made enough of an effort to revitalize his own property. Brockton officials have insisted they can do a better job at updating the 113-year-old building and have already struck a deal with a private developer. And thanks to a shady government tactic known as eminent domain, Monum will have no choice but to move out and find somewhere else to set up shop. What is eminent domain? Uh, eminent domain gives governments the legal authority to confiscate property from private owners or have it condemned so long as it can be justified that doing so is in the public's best interest. Oftentimes, the property is taken under the guise that it will help stimulate the local economy, and in this particular instance, modernizing the space and morphing it into a luxurious apartment building is more important than respecting Monum's property rights. Unfortunately, this appalling practice was upheld by the Supreme Court in a narrow ruling brought down in the 2005 case of Kelo versus City of New London. But even worse, Keto actually broadened eminent domain powers. Prior to the ruling, governments were required to prove that the property in question was being taken for public use. This, had in, this could include the expansion of construction of roads and highways, waterways, or power and pipelines. After the Keto ruling, this requirement was changed to public purpose. The public purpose requirement allows governments to take property so long as they can prove that by doing so, they will help stimulate the economy or generate revenue through increased taxation. In the aftermath of Kelo, 44 states have put limitations on eminent domain powers. Massachusetts, however, is one of the six states 
without any substantial legal protections available to property owners. Brockton hasn't used eminent domain in decades, according to media reports, but the practice is now being resurrected and used against this local business owner. It's not their property, thus it's not really their business what Monum chooses to do with it. City officials, including the mayor, have stood by their decision and condemned Monum for failing to innovate the eight-story building he took ownership of more than 20 years ago. However, it's not their property. Thus, it's not really their business what he chooses to do with it, but the Brockton Redevelopment Authority, which straddles the line between a, being a public and a private entity, has decided it can do more with the property than Monum has and has partnered with the city in order to use all the legal tools available to them to make this happen. Brockton Mayor Bill Carpenter called the building at 93 Center Street a linchpin piece of the revitalization of downtown. He also attempted to justify the city's repulsive actions by trying to blame Monum, saying, Eminent domain is only used as a last resort. We don't want to use it. What it's designed to be is an incentive for the property owner to realize if they don't go forward with some type of viable redevelopment plan, this could happen. <clears throat> eminent, eminent domain does require the government to compensate property owners for their land. Oftentimes, the state entity doing the taking gets to determine what price they think is fair, making the situation ripe for abuse. The city has agreed to pay Monum $1.02 million for the building, which they say is well above the actual market value. But that doesn't justify their actions. For starters, this is taxpayer money they are using. So the residents of Brockton are the ones who are actually on the hook for revitalizing the downtown area. The city is also justifying the land grab by claiming that Monum made no attempt to redevelop his property on his own, which is not entirely true. BRA sneakily colluded with the government to work out a plan to use eminent domain in order to gain ownership of the building. As soon as the deal was complete, it immediately turned the property over to a recently formed developer named 93 Center LLC, but the story only gets murkier from here. This isn't just a conflict of in interest, it is downright cronyism. These private developers are using the government to take a piece of property that doesn't belong to them. Prior to the formation of 93 Center LLC, Monum was working with Ted Carmen, who was then the Concord Square Development. Monum and Carmen had actually joined forces to revitalize the historic building in 2016. Unfortunately, the partnership went south, resulting in a loss of hundreds of thousands of dollars on pre-development costs for Monum. After the partnership dissolved, Carmen began working on 93 Center LLC, thus playing a direct role in its confiscation from Monum. This isn't just a conflict of interest, it's downright cronyism. These private developers are using the government to take a piece of property that doesn't belong to them. The new plan is to take the old building and turn it into 55 separate apartments. However, the developers' plans on reserving the first floor for commercial space to be made available for local businesses, just not Monum's. The mayor has insisted that this is a done deal and that Monum has no legal recourse available to him, but Brockton Furniture isn't relocating without a fight. <clears throat> Not backing down without a fight. The official eviction notice was delivered to Monum in early December, but the wheels have been in motion for some time. Luckily, uh, Monum was smart and hired Joseph Zappo, a real estate attorney who filed a motion with the Brockton Superior Court in an attempt to halt the 93 Center LLC project from happening. 
Uh, the lawsuit continues, Zopo said last week. We don't believe that the city can take the property in the manner that they've done it. There have been some settlement talks that have happened in the last few months that haven't borne fruit. We don't believe that we are the reason for that. But we are certainly not giving up the struggle in keeping the city from sending this off to a different developer. We don't think the city is a kingmaker who decides to develop property in the city of Brockton because they feel someone else would do a better job. Unfortunately, Monum is not the sole victim of eminent domain. Just a few years ago, uh, Elberton, Georgia, made threats to take away a family-owned building from its owners, Bob and Rena Thomas, who ran their small business out of the 567-square-foot office building. After a $5 million hotel was built just next door, the city tried to use its eminent domain powers to take the Thomas's building and turn it into a pedestrian walkway for the hotel. After the couple refused to sell their building to the city, officials used the type of eminent domain called the quick take, which is intended specifically for the construction of highways, not walkways for private hotels. To make matters worse, a similar walkway already existed only 100 feet from the couple's business, making the city's demand for the Thomas's property even more absurd. Luckily, once the couple sought the help of nonprofit law firm Institute for Justice, the city backed down. Uh, private property ownership is a staple of our American way of life and the cornerstone of peace and prosperity. It's the manifestation of individual rights, and no one, whether the government entity or private, has the right to what someone else already owns. Uh, private property ownership is a staple of our American way of life and the cornerstone of peace and prosperity. Oh, wow, it's the same paragraph. It's the manifestation of individual rights, and no one, whether the government entity or private, has the right to what someone else already owns. Hopefully. Monum's case against Brockton will end well, and the court will put his property rights ahead of the city's selfish desire to bring in more revenue. Uh, end of the article. All right, moving on. Let's continue with the property rights theme. <clears throat> we'll need property rights in a world of gene-edited humans. Recently, the announcement that a scientist in China has apparently created gene-edited humans caused widespread panic and concern. Twins from two embryos that had an altered genetic segment for uh, mediation of potential future diseases using a relatively new technique called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, uh, were born. Many of, these, many of the responses to this event are telling in ways that the responders, mainly scientists and ethicists, have, may not have considered. First of all, it is interesting that the supplies and knowledge to perform an act of specific gene editing seems to be commercially available and well understood. This, combined with the ability to isolate the natural materials for human reproduction, namely sperm and eggs, and perform in vitro fertilization with them to eventually produce a human with an altered genetic code has some calling for a moratorium on these activities. Indeed, the rise of citizen scientists seems to be a threat to the scientific establishment. The scary and ill-defined term, designer babies, is back being thrown around during these discussions, which often miss larger points of consideration. Let's touch on the use of scary-sounding terms like designer babies. Whenever a human embryo has been selected using genetic techniques, such as determining if an embryo carries an abnormality, these practices fall into this category. Interestingly, this doesn't seem to cause as much concern even though it may mean selecting embryos, meaning that other potential people are discarded, 
to avoid disease states, as using this technology to produce children with pre-selected gender, eye color, hair color, intellect, or other desired traits. This is where the concern seems to lie. The fact that this is very much how normal human reproduction often works seems to have been lost in the debate. As long as humans have been around, people have selected their mates based on external and internal characteristics, such as all these things previously mentioned and more, and certainly some that cannot be categorized or defined. Even when a pregnancy is unplanned or out of wedlock, there is almost always some level of biological selection that has occurred beforehand. And this selection process will have important impacts on the characteristics of the resulting child or children. To some degree, all babies are designer babies. The other way of doing it is to have some group of people decide who gets to have children, or have it happen randomly through assignment. Some version of this controlled by someone other than you. I'm not sure whom I trust to have much responsibility over humanity. That it seems to be at least somewhat acceptable to screen embryos or sperm or egg cells for signs of disease before use, but not to use these gene editing techniques to fix or attempt to fix or minimize diseases is also telling. The scientists in China did, in fact, attempt to do this, but it's been called unnecessary because other treatments already exist. It is the position of these naysayers that new technologies and treatments to alleviate human suffering from disease are no longer necessary because current treatments exist. Strange indeed from open-minded scientists. Of course, these are important issues, and luckily for us, we already have a, the framework of private property rights and individual sovereignty that work... Excuse me. Private property rights and individual sovereignty that would work just fine. If we are unable to start from a premise that each individual owns his or her body... That seems like a major problem to me. If each individual does not own his own body, who does? The issue of children also raises questions that have been dealt with for thousands of years. Babies need constant care. Children need guidance as they are growing up. And at some point, they become adults with their own natural rights and bodily ownership. All of this has been covered before by many, including Murray Rothbard in Chapter 7 and Josiah Warren. And it should be stated that, in this particular case, parental consent was apparently obtained before any of this happened. The language used to oppose gene editing technologies with humans is also very telling. For example, a group called the Center for Genetics and Society has long been involved in encouraging responsible use and regulations of new human genetic and reproductive technologies. This group has called for an international moratorium on human embryo editing, stating, We're living in a time where racism and socioeconomic disparities are increasingly dramatically, and the last thing we need is for some biological procedure to fuel the false idea that some groups are biologically superior to others. These are certainly all valid concerns. But if we look back at past statements made on behalf of this group, it becomes a little more clear what they are after. Speaking against state-enforced patent protection for genetic materials, uh, rightly so because it means that a corporation can, strictly speaking, own a small piece of a person, and often many people, the following murky case was laid out with these initial statements. Beyond U.S. patent law lies broader questions. Should we treat human genes as private property to be exploited for profit? 
rather than shared resources managed in the public interest? Should we allow corporate ownership to penetrate deeply into areas previously considered outside the commercial realm? So considering genes, components that make up who and what we are, as privately owned is negative because they are exploited for profit, but having them cheated as, treated as a shared resource that are managed in the public interest is perfectly fine. Again, who do you trust to be the manager, if not the individual? The editorial closed with even more confusing statement. It outlawing human gene patents would restore our genomic heritage, the very DNA in our bodies, to the rightful owners, the people. So putting all this together, everyone has their own DNA, but the people somehow need to restore our genetic heritage or genomic heritage by banning techniques to alter the genes that we somehow all share together. Even so, and perhaps in light of all this confusion, calls for oversight by the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. by National Institute of Health have already begun. Even though this appears to be illegal at the U.S. federal level already, rather than more bureaucratic layers and sharing of genetic material, property rights, individual sovereignty, and norms associated with child rearing will work just fine. Thank you. Uh, end of the article. Now, before we move on, I'm just going to chime in real quick because the first two articles so far um, highlight the core of like my moral and ethical system um, that some would argue isn't anarchy enough. Uh, and that is, you know, uh, personal, responsibility, personal responsibility and individual liberty, right? You can do whatever you want, but you're responsible for your actions. And so long as you don't harm uh, anybody else, right, you should be free to go. Uh, as it were. Uh, and so I, I believe that, you know, in a world, in an anarchistic world, absent the state, uh, there has to be some level of respect um, for for private property in general. Uh, uh, housing, like the first example, or the person, like the second article, uh, it, ha it has to be respected. Um, the lack of respect for uh, private property is what will lead uh, an anarchistic society down the road of like violence and chaos. Not that those two things won't exist. Again, not a utopia, uh, but without without some sort of understanding about what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, uh, violence is inevi the inevitable solution. So anyone promoting the idea of an anarchistic society lacking property rights or, or, or respect for property. Uh, you know, if you want to have the discussion on the word rights, you know, respect for ownership and respect for property, um, lacking that, they, they, they are indeed calling for violence because those who wish to maintain ownership uh, over their property or possessions will need to use tools of defense to secure that. Um, and those who don't believe it will need, you know, to use tools to take it. And, and so the battle ensues. Um, however, most people, um, you know, in, a, in an anarchistic, state-free, complete liberty society, uh, respect, you know, the, the what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours philosophy. Um, then the, the onslaught of aggressors trying to take those will be much less uh, and, and, you know, I'm sure there would be services around to help out 
with the protection. So uh, that's all I got to say about that. Just res- respect other people's property, respect other people's rights to, you know, to, to life and liberty as well. And, uh, you know, the violence will not befall you for the most part. And, it, and if it does, hopefully it's because uh, someone is not respecting that, right? And you're defending yourself against them. All right, moving on. Since we are approaching the holidays, uh, and many of you will probably not get to listen to this b- before Christmas, but we'll see. Uh, six reasons to hate the TSA when you travel this Christmas, for those of you that do. Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town with all his liquids in a single quart-sized baggie. Uh, the Transportation Security Agency projects that a record 41 million people will be fl- will fly this holiday season. If you're one of them, be warned. The agency doesn't have a great tracker when it comes to, well, anything. With that in mind, here are seven times the TSA made us shake our heads, either in mild disbelief or intense disgust in 2018. Uh, and quick interjection, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, we covered uh, a few of these uh, on the show throughout the year, so this might be a recap. Um, however, fun times with the TSA, uh, you know, never a problem here. Back into the article. Number one, TSA confiscated a pink plastic dinosaur-shaped hand grenade toy. Uh, this, of course, this is courtesy of the TSA's award-winning Instagram account. It's won more awards than the agency has caught terrorists, which regularly posts photos of confiscated items. In February, the TSA explained that it had found the toy in a carry-on bag in Denver. As you or anyone with half a brain can see below, it is clearly not a real grenade. Uh, and again, interge- interjection real quick, picture in the article. So check out the show page um, to, to see that. But it still wasn't allowed. The agency prohibits replica firearms including toys in carry-ons that policy apparently applies to plastic dinosaurs as well number two a secret watch list for loiterers in may the new york times revealed a five-page directive regarding a watch list for unruly passengers what kind of behavior could warrant a spot on the list anything that's offensive and without legal justification or that threatens the safe and effective completion of our screening. Uh, If you think that's rather broad, you're right. The Times reported that the people who loiter suspiciously near security checkpoints could be put on the watch list. So you'd better keep it moving when you're traveling this holiday season, or you could end up on the TSA's naughty list. Uh, Number three, TSA agents spent five minutes searching for a 96-year-old woman in a wheelchair. Uh, what the hell do you think she's going to do? Set off a shoe bomb? Uh, Jean Clarkson asked a TSA screener, patted her down, 96-year-old wheelchair-bound mother. Uh, Clarkson filmed the entire encounter and posted the video to Facebook, where it racked up more than 9 million views. The agents in the video were very polite, but no doubt they were just trying to do their jobs. But sometimes it's the job that's the problem. Groping an old woman in a wheelchair is security theater at its worst. Instead of robbing senior citizens of their dignity, perhaps the TSA should get better at identifying actual weapons. Number four, Air Marshal secretly followed an artsy Virginia mom on flight to make sure she wasn't going to destroy America. Uh, It sounds ridiculous, but it's completely true. 
As reason Scott Sheckford wrote earlier this year, federal air marshals who operate under the TSA umbrella started tracking Taylor Usri, a social media manager who had traveled to Turkey to take some art courses after she returned to the United States. Air marshals followed her when she flew to Florida in July, tracking everything she did and even boarding the flight with her. Uh, Usri was one of 5,000 passengers tracked by the TSA's Quiet Skies program from March to July. Those passengers included American citizens who were not under federal investigation and not on a terror watch list. The TSA never revealed how it decided who to target, and it's still unclear why air marshals felt the need to note such supposedly suspicious behaviors as using the restroom, sweating, and sleeping on a flight. Uh, thankfully, the TSA said last week it would stop tracking the normal movements of people who are suspected of wrongdo who aren't suspected of wrongdoing though quiet skies will still exist in some form or another. Uh, number five, the, TM the TSA confiscated bullet-shaped ice cubes because uh, reasons. Here's another gold star effort from TSA screeners. In October, the agency posted a photo of some bullet-shaped whiskey stones they had confiscated at an airport in Idaho. Whiskey stones, of course, are used to chill drinks. Crucially, they are not bullets which the TSA bans from carry-on luggage. Again, the TSA does have a policy against bringing replica firearms through security. But in the post, the agency also noted that empty shell casings are fine as long as the projectile is no longer intact and the primer has been removed or has been discharged. In this case, the whiskey stones never had a projectile or a primer in the first place because, again, they're basically ice cubes. But you still can't pack them in the carry-on Otherwise, the terrorists win. Uh, number six, final one. TSA puts the squeeze on a working mom. As a working mother of two, Heather Giaseki had flown enough to become familiar with the TSA's policies regarding breast milk. She knows she was allowed to bring her milk through security, and she knew she was within her rights to decline to A, have her bag of milk scanned by the x-ray machine, and B, open it. She knew a lot more than these, about these guidelines than the TSA agents at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport did. Giaseki was flying home to Illinois in October when screeners asked her to open her bag of milk so they could test it. Uh, worried that it might become contaminated, she declined. But agents told her she couldn't fly with the milk unless she complied. Eventually, Giaseki went on her way without her full day's worth of milk, which went to waste. At the end of the day, it was the TSA agents versus me, Gaseki told Reason at the time, and the mom is going to lose every time in that situation. Uh, end of the article, and again, just you know, one of the one of the great things about having moved uh, at this point is um, the ability to get just about anywhere except home uh, without having to deal with these monsters. Uh, and and as much as possible, I don't I. I like I, I hopefully won't need to fly or go through this uh, anytime soon because um, I know there was a, there used to be the you know the uh, we won't fly protests uh, when this when this first launched and I unfortunately I think those have uh, died out uh, because airports and airline travel is just so damn convenient and everyone just wants to get where they want to go um, and so it's just easier to put up with this nonsense than it is to, to stand up for your rights, uh, knowing you're going to lose, knowing you're not going to get where you want to go. Uh, but hopefully, right, on the back end, um, you know, 
filing a lawsuit or, or getting, you know, getting them held responsible or, you know, other means uh, if you catch my drift. All right, moving on. All right, let's talk about guns, shall we? Over 1 million gun owners refuse to obey ban. No one turning in magazines. Uh, this is New Jersey. Unless you've been under a rock lately, then you've likely seen the unprecedented push by all levels of government to separate law-abiding Americans from their guns. No, this is not some conspiracy theory. The president himself ushered in a new level of gun control, doing what his liberal predecessors even refused to do by banning bump stocks, which we'll get into in the next article, uh, interjecting and back. However, as states across the country seek to limit the ability of innocent people to defend themselves, people are disobeying. In May, Governor Phil Murphy signed a law that reduced the maximum capacity of ammunition magazines from 15 rounds to 10. Citizens immediately sued the government, citing the unconstitutional nature of the ban, but they failed. New Jersey's law reasonably fits the state's interest in public safety and does not unconstitutionally burden the Second Amendment's right to self-defense in the home, the court wrote in their decision. The law also does not violate the Fifth Amendment's takings clause because it does not require gun owners to surrender their magazines, but instead allows them to retain modified magazines or register firearms that have magazines that cannot be modified. Attorney General Gerber Grewal applauded the ruling on Twitter, stating, This just in, for months, individuals have been challenging New Jersey's limits on large-capacity magazines, a sensible law to address mass shootings. Today, the Court of Appeals upheld the law. Big win for public safety and law enforcement safety. This month, citizens were given a December 11th deadline on their new ban on standard capacity magazines. The law effectively turned 1 million law-abiding gun owners into criminals literally overnight if they failed to turn in the magazines. Somehow, New Jersey lawmakers thought insane individuals who want to carry out mass shootings would be lining up to turn in their 15-round magazines as anyone caught with one of these banned magazines is now committing a fourth-degree felony. However, even the law-abiding citizens are choosing to disobey, and that's a good thing. According to Amoland.com, who says they spoke with multiple police departments throughout the state, no one has turned in their magazines. According to, to the report, uh, two sources from within the state police who spoke to Amoland on conditions of anonymity uh, told Amoland News that they both do not know of any magazines turned over to their agency and doubted that they were turned in. They also stated that the state police also engaged the AG's office for guidance on how to respond to inquiries such as ours. They were unaware if the Attorney General had returned their request for guidance. All the local police departments that Amoland contacted said that they have not had any magazines turned into them. Uh, Amoland has filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the New Jersey State Police to get an official count of the number of magazines turned in by New Jersey citizens. We will update the story if our FOIA request is fulfilled. Uh, this act of disobedience is the only way that law-abiding citizens can effectively and peacefully fight back against the gun grabbers. And so far, it has been effective. Uh, as TFTP has reported, we've seen similar acts of disobedience from other states like Illinois. Uh, in Effingham County, Illinois, the town board voted in April to order its employees not 
to enforce any laws that would unconstitutionally restrict the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Effingham County State Attorney Brian Keebler said the measure is meant to act as a warning shot to tell the state legislature that the county does not want unnecessary gun control measures or for the sale of firearms to be jeopardized. Uh, the resolution states, The right of the people to keep and bear arms is guaranteed as an individual right under the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution and under the Constitution of the State of Illinois, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms for the defense of life, liberty, and property is regarded as an inalienable right by the people of Effingham County, Illinois, and the people of Effingham County, Illinois derive economic benefit from all safe forms of firearms, recreation, hunting, and shooting conducted within Effingham County using all types of firearms allowable under the United States Constitution. Uh, board member David Campbell told Fox News that the county decided it's time for someone to take a ha hard stand. Indeed, as we've noted time and again, rights are preserved and gained when good people make a stand and refuse to obey bad laws. Uh, end of the article. And I agree on that last part. I mean, that's the, the, the whole point of, you know, living free uh, within the confines of a status system is, you know, you obey the laws um, that don't interfere with your life, right? And you break the laws that do. And then you just, you just move on with, with life in general. Uh, I, I forget the entire quote, but it's, if, if the law is tolerable, I will tolerate it. If it is intolerable, I will not, um, you know, and, and banning magazines and guns and making people turning them in uh, is an intolerable law. Uh, so good on those people for standing up for themselves, their rights, their liberties, and their their property, uh, as discussed earlier in the show, uh, and and not giving it, you know, to the government, to the state, to to the the gun grabbers, uh, as it were. Moving on, uh, as mentioned in that article, um, here's the the Trump article. Uh, Trump's bump stock ban shows once again he is happy to ignore inconvenient laws. Today, the Justice Department finalized its ban on bump stocks, which Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker claims merely clarifies federal law. It actually rewrites federal law, a function the Constitution assigns to Congress. Uh, Whitaker also wants us to believe that the bump stock ban shows President Donald Trump is a law and order president. Uh, to the contrary, it shows he is a president who ignores the law whenever it proves inconvenient. The final rule uh, defines bump stock type devices as machine guns. Under the National Firearms Act of 1934 and the Gun Control Act of 1968, because such devices allow a shooter of a semi-automatic firearm to initiate a continuous firing cycle with a single pull of the trigger. Uh, that understanding of the law contradicts the plain language of the NFA. Uh, the position repeatedly taken by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives during the Obama administration and the interpretation endorsed by both supporters and opponents of a legislative ban. Uh, the NFA defines a machine gun as any weapon which shoots, is designed to shoot, or can be readily restored to shoot automatically more than one shot without manual reloading by a single function of the trigger. A bump stock harnesses recoil energy to make a rifle slide back after it's been fired, resetting the trigger. Uh, if the shooter maintains forward pressure on the barrel, the trigger will bump against his stationary finger, causing the gun to fire again, and so on. Uh, this technique increases the rate of fire, but the rifle is still shooting just one round for each function of the trigger. 
the Justice Department had to find a way around the clear meaning of the law because the president promised to ban bump stocks by administrative fiat after they were used by the perpetrator of an attack that killed 58 people in Las Vegas last year. Uh, the DOJ accomplished that trick by defining a single function of the trigger as a single pull of the trigger and defined pull to exclude what happens during bump fire. Uh, according to this account, when the trigger is activated by bumping against the trigger finger, that is not, contrary to logic and appearance, a function of the trigger. Another problem for DOJ was that a rifle equipped with a bump stock does not operate automatically, since the shooter has to maintain constant forward pressure with the non-trigger hand on the barrel shroud or foregrip of the rifle and constantly reward pressure or yeah, reward pressure on the device's extension ledge with the shooter's trigger finger, as the rule notes. The Justice Department resolved that difficulty by treating the shooter as part of the rifle mechanism. According to the rule, these devices convert an otherwise semi-automatic firearm into a machine gun by functioning as a self-acting or self-regulated mechanism that harnesses the recoil energy of the semi-automatic firearm in a manner that allows the trigger to reset and continue firing without additional physical manipulation of the trigger by the shooter. Uh, that gloss is accurate only if you ignore the role of the human who pushes the rifle forward to engage the trigger and if you insist that activating the trigger in a manner does in that manner does not count as a physical manipulation of the trigger. Uh, the DOJ claims this counterintuitive perspective reflects the best interpretation of the term machine gun, by which it means the interpretation that facilitates the result demanded by the president. As Joshua Prince and Adam Kraut, lawyers representing the Firearms Policy Coalition, noted in comments on the rule, the DOJ's interpretive jiggery-pokery is pure applesauce. It is not only inconsistent with what everyone previously understood the law to mean, but it arbitrarily targets certain products when DOJ's reasoning would cover all manner of jury-rigged setups that make bump fire possible. An individual does not require a bump stock device in order to bump fire a factory semi-automatic firearm, uh, Prince and Krauss write. ATF readily acknowledged that bump firing can lawfully be achieved through the use of rubber bands, belt loops, or to otherwise train the trigger finger to fire more rapidly, in a clear statement of its intent to unequally apply the law. Given those alternatives, not to mention the trade-off between speed and accuracy for shooters using bump stocks, it is doubtful that banning them will have any noticeable impact on the lethality of mass shootings. At the same time, it seems like they ought to be covered by the Second Amendment as arms that are in common use for lawful purposes, even if they are by no means necessary to exercise the constitutional right to armed self-defense. But the question is not whether banning bump stocks is a good idea. The question is whether bump stocks are already banned. Although the Obama administration was much more supportive of gun control than the Trump administration, it repeatedly declared that bump stocks were illegal meaning that banning them would require a new act of Congress. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, a, a dogged gun controller, agreed. This is one of the few gun-related questions on which Feinstein, Feinstein sees eye-to-eye with Representative Town of Massey, leader of the Congressional Second Amendment Caucus. When you look at the law, you can see why. Only by stretching and distorting it can you achieve the end ordered by Trump. 
Politically, a bump stock ban makes sense. Like most gun control measures, it creates the appearance of doing something about deadly violence. Furthermore, this particular measure won't raise the hackles of the National Rifle Association, which preemptively endorsed an administrative ban on bump stocks or opened the door to more ambitious restrictions, as seeking new legislation from Congress might. Next to those benefits, the political cost of turning otherwise law-abiding gun tinkerers into felons if they fail to destroy or surrender their property seems negligible, notwithstanding the opposition of a few smaller gun rights groups. Legally, however, the precedent set by the Trump's bump stock ban is troubling regarding of how you feel about the Second Amendment or define its scope. The president does not have the authority to rewrite laws that interfere with his agenda, whether the subject is guns or immigration. Uh, principled critics of, an, of this administration should call Trump out whenever he oversteps his legal power, even when they happen to, even when they happen to like the outcome. Uh, an update to the article. Today, the Firearms Policy Coalition filed a federal lawsuit challenging Trump's bump stock ban. The ATF has misled the public about bump stock devices, said, jo said jo Joshua Prince, uh, one of the group's lawyers. Worse, they are actively attempting to make felons out of people who relied on their legal opinions to lawfully acquire and possess devices the government unilaterally, unconstitutionally, and improperly decided to reclassify as machine guns. Uh, end of the article. Uh, we had a brief discussion, was it last week or the week before, uh, with MC on, you know, um, the, the, the position of violence uh, against police officers and, and agents of the state and, you know, me treading a thin line as not wanting to be disbarred uh, from the Free State Project um, for making outrageous claims that others have made in the past. Uh, but my, my general feeling with the uh, magazine ban and the bump stock ban is um, keep your weapons and defend your property against those who tried to take them from you, right? I mean, it's it's not calling for an outright um, onslaught against agents of the state, although I would also be okay with that, right? I'm fine with that personally, Um but if they try to take your magazines or they try to take your bump stock, shoot them. Like that's, that's, you know, it's, 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 it may seem like a harsh thing to say, but it's, it's, it's effectively why you have the weapons in the first place, right? We, we need not make arguments, um, for, you know, needing it to hunt for, you know, food and survival and, and whatnot, you know, anymore. I mean, yes, you know, you know, guns can be used for that purpose, uh, but the primary function self-defense for most people right most most gun owners aren't you know uh, going out hunting hunting you know sport hunting or food hunting you know on 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 the weekdays right it's not like you know you gotta you gotta go get that elk in order to provide food for your family type of a thing you know we we've, we've uh, for lack of a better term evolved past that uh, as a as a species uh, i guess with agriculture and farming and whatnot um but you still need, you still need protection. You know, a, a friend of mine sent me a video about, you know, a lady testifying um, after her parents got like massacred in, in a, in a madman gone crazy in a restaurant, you know, and, and her gun wasn't at the ready uh, because of some shit law uh, that the state of Texas had. Um, and had she been armed, you know, the, the outcome would have been different. Uh, how different, uh, you know, can't be said, but different nonetheless. And it's about that, you know, freedom, liberty to choose 
whether or not you're going to defend yourself with a firearm and whether or not you're allowed to own it and to defend yourself against those who would come and take it. You know, any, any, anyone clamoring about, you know, they're coming to take our guns, um, doesn't understand what the guns are, are supposed to be used for, right? You don't, you don't have to cry that they're banning guns and they're going to come take it. You just, you have it. And when they come to take it, uh, you and your buddies, right. Who hopefully didn't turn them in either, uh, put them down, right. You know, just in the, in their place. Um, was it the, the Bundy standoff, uh, in Utah some years ago, you know, shows that the, the federal government or the, the state agents aren't necessarily there to massacre anybody, uh, when they're outnumbered, right. When, when you have that many gun owners ready to defend private property and property rights and liberty and individual liberties, um, you know, you can, you can face down the initial threat from the state. Now, will they try to pick you off later one by one? Absolutely. So, you know, be vigilant and stay together. Uh, but don't, you know, by, by no means, uh, let them take away your last means of self-defense against them. Uh, because history from other countries is readily available to show, uh, what happens when a government disarms the populace. Moving on. <clears throat> See, now, moving on, and let's uh, do this one. Saying you're against fascists doesn't excuse acting like one. Uh, and I will say this. This this article is about Antifa. Uh, and it's a, for me, I'll get into the article, but for me, Antifa is a weird thing, right? Because on the one hand, uh, like, I'm not a fascist, and I don't like any type of, you know, government at all. So to be anti-fascist, you would think I'd be one of them, right? And technically, I am. Like, I'm anti-fascist and anti-fascism. Um, but these dudes are usually morons with bad tactics attacking the wrong people. And if they could be harnessed, right, the, their actions are not necessarily bad actions, <clears throat> just bad targets. So if, you know, if... if if they're going to, if the state is going to come and take your guns away, right? Attacking the state like Antifa attacks, you know, their selected political opponents wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. <clears throat> they just suck at choosing their enemies uh, <laughs> and, and who they go after. Uh, but if, if they could be harnessed to fight against the state, against the actual government, you know, the, the, the actual fascists, not the, the people walking around, you know, doing white power Nazi salutes, um, then maybe Antifa could be useful um, in defense against, you know, actual fascism, actual statism, actual government abuse of power. All right, reading the article. On March 23, 1919, Benito Mussolini, an Italian veteran of the Great War and a publisher of socialist newspapers, created the Fascist de Combattimento, commonly known as the Fascist Party, with the help of a few syndicalist friends. Nearly 100 years later, the word fascism remains at the forefront of our political discourse, even though fascism is all but dead as a political force, and the word has lost much of its meaning, if not its power. So why are we still talking about fascists? The Rise of Antifa On November 8th, the late-night TV host Stephen Colbert took to Twitter to condemn a mob that had attacked the home of Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Fighting Tucker Carlson's ideas is an American right, Colbert wrote. 
targeting his home and terrorizing his family is an act of monstrous cowardice. Obviously, don't do this, but also take no pleasure in its happening. Feeding monsters just makes more monsters. The attackers consisted of a group who called themselves Antifa. Few Americans have heard the word Antifa prior to 2016, but that's no longer the case. Numerous high-profile incidents involving Antifa, uh, the Battle of Berkeley, the tragedy in Charlottesville, and a series of street battles in Portland, have thrust the loosely organized political group into the national spotlight. In addition to the attack on Carlson's home, numerous high-profile incidents involving Antifa, the Battle of Berkeley, the tragedy in Charlottesville, and a series of street battles in Portland. Why does it always have the same paragraph twice? It's difficult to miss gangs of black-clad individuals who wear masks, tote weapons, and pick fights with political opponents. Antifa, if you have not already guessed, is short for anti-fascism. Conduct a Google search, and you'll see Antifa oppose fascist ideologies, people, and groups. This is part of the brilliance of Antifa. Unlike most fringe political groups, Antifa is not named for something. Their name expresses opposition to an ideology, one that is at once vile and nebulous. We're all fascists now. Uh, more than seven decades ago, the British writer George Orwell observed that the term fascism had lost any coherent meaning. Uh, the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as that it signifies something not desirable, Orwell wrote in his essay Politics and the English Language. Because of the ambiguous nature of the word, Antifa and other alt-left groups have been able to brand thinkers as diverse as Charles Murray, Kristen, Christina Hoff Summers, Jordan B. Peterson, and Ben Shapiro as fascists. By branding themselves as anti-fascists, Antifa inoculate themselves from criticism that, is, that usually is directed toward extremist groups. Moreover, by branding themselves anti, as anti-fascists, wow, more paragraphs that are the same. Colbert's condemnation of Antifa's attack on Tucker Carlson's home notwithstanding, there has been a cultural reluctance to condemn Antifa's political violence and tactics. In 2017, following the tragic events in Charlottesville, which involved the showdown between white supremacists and Antifa members, former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney said it was wrong to equate fascists and anti-fascists. No, not the same, said Romney tweeted. Uh, one side is racist, bigoted, Nazi. The other opposes racism and bigotry. Morally different universes. Uh, fascist and Antifa, not as different as you think. Romney expressed a common belief, but Antifa is hardly the polar opposite of fascism. An examination of Antifa and the fascists of the 20s and 30s reveals striking similarities. Many historians and political writers describe fascism as a right-wing movement, and, the claim that, and the, that claim has an element of truth to it. When Mussolini and his syndicalist friends created the Fasci di Combattimento, it, it's true they embraced Italian nationalism. Yet the party also called for the seizure of church lands, the confiscation of finance capital, and the abolition of the Italian monarchy and senate. In fact, Mussolini was an ardent Marxist for years, the son of a socialist, anarchist, craftsman. He was well-versed in the works of Karl Marx, whom he praised as a magnificent philosopher of working-class violence. In fact, Mussolini was an ardent Marxist for years. The extent to which Mussolini's fascists simply copied their socialist predecessors has often been overlooked. <clears throat> in his magnum opus, uh, Modern Times, the historian Paul Johnson explained that Mussolini was highly influenced by Kurt Eisner, who was cited several times in Mussolini's fascist program. 
Eisner's Bavarian Fighting Squad, which inspired Mussolini's Fasi di Combattimento, were themselves inspired by Lenin's men in black leather jerkins, Johnson points out. Uh, Mussolini's use of the term vanguard minority to describe the shock troops of his revolution was almost certainly inspired by Lenin's vanguard fighters, a term Lenin first used in 1903. <clears throat> Communists and fascists of the 20s and 30s were unified by one thing above all else, their willingness to use political violence to achieve political goals. Mussolini, like Lenin, had no qualms about using violence in his effort to make history, not endure it a Marx quote Mussolini was fond of employing. The perils of a philosophy of violence. <clears throat> the use of violence to attain political goals is a stance Antifa similarly embraces. Antifa openly advocates and employs violence and intimidation. Like Mussolini's vanguard minorities, they dress in black garb, although Antifa members often cover their faces and use intimidation and violence to prevent political opponents from assembling. These tactics include launching feces at law enforcement and using bricks, bats, and chains and knives in their street wars. Uh, interjection real quick. See, that's the kind of stuff that I'm okay with for the Antifa. When they're combating law enforcement and other state agencies, like good on them. It's when they attack like regular people uh, and again, you know, businesses who are, you know, private enterprises that they just they go off the chains and off the rails a little bit. <clears throat> or political opponents exercising free speech. Uh, Back into the article. The methods are ostensibly reserved for fascists, yet so many have shown a willingness to overlook the fact that Antifa is employing fascist tactics. Antifa is given a pass because labeling the other side as fascist automatically makes them good, for they are the ones fighting against fascism. It's a brilliant rhetorical trick. As Chris Cuomo said in defense of Antifa on a carefully worded CNN segment in August, fighting against hate matters. In a moral universe where the ends justify the means, using fascist tactics to fight fascists or other people deemed fascists is entirely proper. The dangers of embracing the philosophy of violence, however, are severe. For as Solzhenitsyn observed, the first casualty of violence is the truth. <clears throat> violence does not live alone and is not capable of living alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is necessarily interwoven with falsehood the Russian writer observe, observed prior to his exile from the Soviet Union. Any man who has once acclaimed violence as his method must inexorably choose falsehood as his prince, principle. Uh, social needs and points point is one antibus should seriously consider. If they do not, and they persist in their defense and employment of violence as a means to their political end, Antifa will continue to be interwoven with falsehoods. Their grandiose aims will prove as empty and sterile as those of the Jacobins and Bolsheviks who preceded them. Uh, end of the article, for the most part. It's, again, weird the, the way the paragraphs were working out there. Um, so yeah, again, as I said in the middle, right? I don't ha I don't necessarily have a problem with their tactics. Um, it's it's the tactic that the the gun owners who are afraid of getting their guns taken away, uh, should, and I don't mind using the word should, should employ against those looking to take their guns away. <laughs> if, 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 and it would be defensive because it's like, it's anti-gun grabbing, right? It's, and it's anti, uh, it's anti-constitutional or, you know, however, however that phrasing works out. It's anti-anti-constitutional. Um, if they're, if they're trying to break, if they're trying to violate the rules of the constitution, and, and you prevent them from doing so or fight back against them, like you're in the right uh, automatically. Uh, just, you know, choose your targets 
and hopefully Antifa will get their shit together uh, and start going after the, the real fascists, uh, <laughs> not the, the racists with no real agenda. Uh, moving on. And this will probably be the last article because I'm pressed up against the time and I might go a little bit over. Against government humanitarianism. Um, and I wanted to bring this up because again, it's, you know, it's the holiday season. Everyone's giving. Everyone's like, oh, be good to each other for like the, you know, the few weeks at the end of the year rather than, you know, maintaining that as a lifestyle uh, throughout the year. Uh, but with all the, you know, the GoFundMes and Kickstarters and all that other fun stuff and, you know, trying to get... Uh, you know, for, for whatever political agenda you're, you're endorsing, uh, something has to be said for doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, regardless of whether or not, um, the government's, you know, interfering. So against government humanitarianism, we need to break the hold of the idea that states and their governments are there to provide humanitarian assistance here at home. This idea is expressed in much of what big government does in its social programs, Government aid after hurricanes and natural disasters has become routine. Extended into foreign affairs, this idea leads to both foreign aid and foreign wars. When the wars are viewed as assisting an oppressed population to throw off tyranny and become free. Uh, most of big government that makes it big and not limited traces back to the idea that such activities are moral. Uh, this idea draws from sources like the Good Samaritan Parable and General Christian Brotherhood. Because America has Christian roots, the idea is firmly embedded in that the government should do right by engaging in humanitarian endeavors of all sorts. Unfortunately, the idea is wrong that humanitarianism should be affected through the collective powers of a coercive government. It is wrong even in the Gospels. It is a mistake of religious interpretation or of religion to conclude that government humanitarianism is or can be moral. It is a further gigantic mistake to think that it's even an effective approach to rendering assistance. Morally and pragmatically, big government humanitarianism is wrong. The Good Samaritan story is about personal assistance, not an aid made possible by taxation. One cannot ignore that Jesus refused the kingdoms of the world. One cannot ignore that Jesus distinguished God from Caesar. Uh, in the most far-reaching libertarian approach, the government is illegitimate because taxes are coerced. One cannot justify or regard government as a morally upright charity that helps out people in need or invading a country with the aim of removing its shackles of tyranny. The same conclusion holds for the minarchist view of limited government. For a good portion of American history, at least some of those who were in government and ran it regarded big government humanitarianism as unlawful. Other favors such aid. John Calhoun sponsored a bill funding internal improvements, what we now call infrastructure. This is a form of domestic aid. James Madison vetoed it. He wrote, The power to regulate commerce amongst the several states cannot include a power to construct roads and canals and to improve the navigation of watercourses in order to facilitate, promote, and secure such a commerce without a latitude of construction departing from the ordinary import of the term strengthened by the known inconvenience which doubtless lead to the grant of this remedial power to Congress. To refer the power in question to the cause to provide for the common defense and general welfare would be contrary to the established and consistent ruling of interpretation as rendered the special and careful enumeration of powers which followed the clause uh, nugatory and improper. Such a view of the Constitution would have the effect of giving the Congress a general power of legislation instead of defined and limited one hitherto understood to belong to them. The term common defense and general welfare embracing every object and act within the purview of a legislative trust. 
These clauses are no longer barriers to big government. They are accepted as supporting big government. The U.S. Constitution has not only been subverted, it has been inverted. Nowadays, constitutionality is no barrier at all to big government and its humanitarian justification because new constitutions and rights declared legalize them. Socialism is enforced to the point of a legal government gun. It is best to be openly blunt in rejecting government humanitarianism as wrong in and of itself. One will be accused of being heartless and cruel. Good. The accusation stimulates counterarguments. When confronted with the overwhelming evidence that government interventions not only are morally wrong but, wrong, but go wrong in practice, their advocates invariably fall back to the position that they weren't done right or that it only needs some tinkering or adjustment to accomplish their aims. It is, however, impossible to fix a system that has an inbuilt and fundamental flaw in its incentives. A government taxation by force, the taxing powers with resources to disperse as they see fit, within limits so broad and ill-defined that they can pursue almost any aims that do not result in revolution against them. Consequently, they have extraordinarily weak incentives to act as fiduciary or a trustee might be required to act. Irresponsibility is the result. When Democrats and Republicans debate on how to spend the funds at their disposal, the result is often a is often a detail because neither side is motivated to act as a trustee of the public trust. The largest component of U.S. government is the Pentagon, and it's irresponsible. In 2018, it finally has a comprehensive audit, and it fails. The Pentagon has failed what is being called its first ever comprehensive audit, a senior official said Thursday, finding U.S. Defense Department accounting discrepancies that could take years to resolve. It is not to be expected that the U.S. government could ever do right or get it right in spending tax proceeds, whether for humanitarian aid or any other kind of aid. The system is not constructed so as to bring about the outcome, despite the fact that public support is intact because of the appeal of helping people in need out. It is the wrong idea of government and as a help agent that must be discarded. Uh, end of that article as well. And uh, end of the show. But you get the idea, right? You know, the, the government doesn't do anything right except steal money from people uh, and, and you know, hurt people otherwise. Uh, other than that, it, it's effectively useless and unnecessary and should be discarded as a bad idea as we move forward with, again, what I said at the beginning of the show, personal responsibility, personal liberty, uh, and just, you know, treating each other with respect to the life, liberty, and property that we should all have and maintain, um, uh, moving forward. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, you guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, facebook.com slash anarchistexperience, facebook.com slash groups slash anarchistexperience, twitter.com slash the anarchist exp, uh, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. Uh, and for you commies out there who don't like the fact that I, I post the show on Patreon, just feel free to listen to it and then not contribute because that's an option, right? It's not, it's not a paid show. And I don't advertise, uh, but you can donate to the show. If you feel like contributing financially, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Uh, you've already been thanked for listening. So we'll talk to you all next week. Peace and Merry Christmas. <laughs>